This is Roger Hallam, and you're listening to Designing the Revolution. This is Talk 5, Part 2, So What's the Ban? <clears throat> All right, so in the first part of this talk, I went through the general design principles. Um, and in this part, I'm going to go through the rest of the talks or explain how I'm going to do uh, the rest of the podcast in a little bit more detail. So just to see where we're up to, as I think you've hopefully got it in your heads by now, this revolution is coming one way or another. It's not an act of faith. It's not an ideological projection. It's a physical reality. Um, uh, but you're probably thinking, you're probably right to think, well, that's all well and good, but there's no guarantee it's going to have a good outcome. In fact, you'd probably be quite within your rights to say, probably going to end really badly because, let's face it, a lot of revolutions do, and it's not that likely to succeed because, you know, these things generally fail. So I just want to confess at this point that just for the record, I'm not particularly keen on revolutions either. From an observational point of view, they don't seem to work out. They seem to be extremely unpleasant, let's put it like that, uh, a lot of the time. Um, so I want to be clear that for these podcasts, I'm not saying in a perfect world revolution should be happening or shouldn't. I'm pretty agnostic about it, to be honest. But given it is coming, um, we need to prepare for it. And that's basically where we're coming from. I definitely have a really clear agenda, and I'm sure you listening to this do as well, in terms of, okay, if it's coming, you've got a responsibility to prepare for it and to try and make it a semi-decent sort of affair. So that leads on to this idea, have we actually got any new ideas here? If you look at the revolutions of the last 200 years, they have a rather depressingly predictable pattern. Um, and it would be a reasonable thing to say. You haven't got any great ideas up our sleeves. It's just going to follow the old pattern. Well, the good news, of course, is that history doesn't totally repeat itself and new things do happen. And, um, and yes, we do have a few new cards in our pack, as it were. So since the Second World War, and that's definitely since 1989, there's been a lot of research on the way that humans take, human groups, societies, political science. Um, so we're not where we were 50, 60, 100 years ago. We've got a few new ideas. And I'm just going to briefly go through these just to sort of uh, give you a taste of what might be coming down the line. Um, so if you don't totally get what I'm saying here, then don't worry about it. I'm going to be going through it in loads more detail. But I'm going to throw a few cards on the table, as it were. So the first one is proximity, which is if we are going to design uh, revolutionary episodes, we need to design them so that all the bits connect together quickly in time and space so that we can control the process and the process actually leads to some positive revolutionary output. So we need to look closely at the micro-design, which is I'm going to talk more about. Secondly and relatedly, we need to think about what I'm going to call sociability. 
Now, we could call it a bunch of other things, uh, but this is probably the central concept of of the next 2030 podcasts. I mean, there's a bunch of other ideas coming in, but this is definitely a central one. And this is the idea that we want to deconstruct this whole notion of the political as lots of atomized computers, i.e. human brains, making decisions without any heart, without any connection, without any desire for social recognition and such like, which is all nonsense, as we've already discussed. And what we uh, are going to be looking at is the micro-design of this sociability, how you bring people together so you create the bedrock, as it were, the, the soil out of which grows the new social norms, social institutions. In other words, we're definitely looking at some deep transformation of um, cultural and social ways that society operates. So a third idea is deliberation, which is probably a little bit more familiar, which is this whole notion that views do come together when they're given the time and space to deliberate. Deliberate meaning uh, people say where they're up to, what they think, and then they hear what other people think and feel, and through a process of give and take, as it were, they come to some resolution, not just a technical resolution, but a level of emotional productivity which builds the social fabric of society. And the fourth one, well, people don't know what it means, but it's a fairly simple idea, and that's sortition. So this is the idea that we, we remove or design out the corruption of the political sphere by giving power to people on the basis of chance selected by lot, as it's traditionally called. So instead of the political powers that be being able to influence who's given power, i.e. in a representative democracy, through spending money and pre-selecting <laughs> candidates and then corrupting people once they're in power, you basically end up with this deeply revolutionary notion of selecting ordinary people, you know, caterers, window cleaners, decorators, whatever, ordinary people through a process of uh, uh, arbitrary selection, as you might say, by chance. So you might be thinking, yeah, 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 well, that's, you know, sounds pretty interesting. Um, but, you know, how does this all fit, apart, fit together? What does it really mean? All good questions, and I will be going into quite a lot of detail about it but i'm hoping to give you that little flavor that there's a few new things coming down the line right and uh humanity is capable of dreaming up new ways of organizing itself and having the imagination uh that um we like to think we have and we do so there's a little example here um before extinction rebellion came along the way social movements were organised, the way political parties were organised, was very much a sort of set deal. You sort of knew how it was, and they had their pros and cons, and obviously a lot more cons than pros. But to show how historical developments work, Extinction Rebellion rebelled not just against the governments on the 
climate crisis, but also against a certain culture and process that had been followed in social and progressive movements for the previous 30, 50 years. And part of this was learning from the United States, uh, the mechanisms of creating Gandhian civil disobedience, which had some sort of cultural debt. It wasn't just a, a, a um, it wasn't just a, a tactic. It was a way of being without sounding too dramatic about it. Um, it had a certain culture, it had trainings and such like. And secondly, you know, connecting a little bit with this idea of deliberation, it was updating the notion of how people make decisions. And this was drawing, to certain extent, in my view anyway, from German social philosophy since the World War II, people like Habermas and such like, and this notion that it's the process of people coming together politically, both internally in XR and between XR and a political opponent, that determines pro-social outcomes. And there's a whole bunch of ideas around that. So you can see, you know, obviously in an imperfect and contingent sort of way, Extinction Rebellion was developing something new. And without putting too fine a point on it, what we're going to be discussing here is, is a sort of XR 2.0. I know that's a bit of a horrible phrase, but something along those lines. Um, so to summarise then, there is help at hand. It's not all doom and gloom. And um, yeah, so let's move on to look at this in a bit more detail. All right. So, oh, won't be a second. Oh, sorry. No, just on the phone. Okay, so what's the, yeah, the next thing I'm going to talk about is, is, um, the podcasts. So one of the difficulties about doing a linear uh, progression, as it were, of podcasts is with very complicated social processes that we're going to discuss. It's, there's no obvious linear process. It's like things loop back upon each other and circle back and they're all intermixed and they all affect each other. So you're going to have to bear with me a little bit because I'm just going to jump in, do a bunch of podcasts, and if you're thinking, yeah, I don't really understand how all this fits together, that's because I can't really do it all at once, and you're just going to have to bear with me. And I remember some um, famous lecturer who discussed Marx's capital, and he sort of made the same point that, you know, oh, you read capital is this great book that Karl Marx wrote, and no, I haven't read it, <laughs> but uh, he gave the, uh, what he said about it was, Marx just starts off, and for the first few chapters, you don't really know how it all fits together, because it's so complicated, and it's only once you've got into a few chapters, you sort of start getting your head around it. So that's what I'm, that's my excuse, as you might say. All right, so let's, let's make another key point, which is, it's sort of tempting, and I think an expectation will be, that I'm just going to do some standard, you know, revolution, 
promotion bunch of podcasts I'm going to go through, you know, what the program is, what we want to achieve, then how we're going to achieve it. That's not what I'm going to do. Partially because we've got a few new cards in the pack. And the cards in the pack basically are brought together under this notion of micro-design. So we've already talked about this idea of design of the social space, that the key space of agency is not the individual, the isolated individual, nor is it sort of macro-analysis, the process of capitalism at some, some top level. It's the space where people interact, you know, 10 or 20 people in a room, the small group, and the that design has massive implications upon the cultural and thus political resilience of the revolutionary pro project. So a sort of classic example here is, is uh, a while ago I heard Owen Jones, who's a great guy, you know, very progressive, left-wing, knows what he wants, and he gave this sort of rhetorical spiel saying, we have to go out and talk to people and tell them about socialism. And I think he mentioned Cornwall or something. You know, we need to go to Cornwall and, and talk to people and and mobilise them, you know. Which is all well and good, of course, but totally meaningless. Because uh, for starters, the fundamental design principle is not that you talk to people, but you enable people to talk, which is quite a different kettle of fish. And having made that sort of structural design point, then how you enable people to speak covers a whole multitude of things, which are massively influential on whether they feel empowered to move into some sort of, you know, activism role, let's say. So that's one reason why we're going to start off with a whole bunch of work on the nuts and bolts of small-scale organising. Um, and a sort of related idea about why this is a good idea is without sounding too sort of patronising, everybody listening to this has to be disciplined in the, the mundanities of organising ordinary people. It's, this is not, we're not engaging here in some top-level castles in the air, day after the revolution, we'll just make everything happen. That's all bollocks, with all due respect. <laughs> right? What we need to do is to become disciplined and mature enough and hard-working enough, and I can't stress that word enough, hard-working, in order to um, profoundly understand, not just superficially, but profoundly understand how people tick in groups and how we can enable people to liberate themselves as is the, you know, major two-century project that we're part of. So an example here is um, the Freedom Riders, in, no, Freedom Summer rather, in the civil rights movement in the United States. So the idea was all these college kids, white college kids from the northern states, were going to go down, I think about 5,000 of them, to Mississippi, if I remember the state rightly, and enable people to um, enable people to um, get registered for the for the uh, for voting. And when they interviewed people, they said, "Look, you know, if we just want you to stuff envelopes for three months, would you still do it?" 
which is obviously a catch question because if you said, no, 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 you know, I want to do frontline glorious stuff, they said, well, obviously this person's you know, got too much of an ego or whatever, and they, uh, they wouldn't take them on. And this relates to a sort of broader point about traditionally what work gets done by who in social change and revolutionary change. And it shouldn't come as any surprise, of course, which is that traditionally it's women that do these basic jobs, the pastoral work, the small-scale organising, the stuffing the envelopes, as they used to say. And without that women's work, without the work of the guys in the back room, everything else is just not going to happen. So you've got Martin Luther King going off, you know, doing, you know, undeniably great stuff, but behind him, you had all these women in churches doing all the support stuff. So I'm not saying this just, you know, in order to sound politically correct to it. I'm saying with absolute seriousness that this is what we need to focus on because if we don't, it just doesn't work. It's as simple as that. So, so what are we going to be looking at in the first series of podcasts then is his whole bunch of talks centered around the process of mobilizing people, the process of organizing nonviolent direct action, uh, forms of uh, peaceful disruption, the framing around that, and the overall organization principles. Okay, so what talks am I um, looking at here? We're looking at a bunch of podcasts around the issues of how to mobilize people, uh, how to organize nonviolent direct action, peaceful disruption, uh, around designing the framing for those activities, the media work, and how to bring all that together in some sort of overall organizational structure that has a particular leadership culture and such like. So this is the first part of this podcast series, though, this bunch of talks around these basics of small-scale organizing. And I'll split each sort of it, each subject into a discussion around the theory, the principles that we're going to apply, and then the practice, and show how the theory and the practice sort of fuses together. This is not a matter of just trundling in there and making it up as you go along. We can have some design principles, and then we're going to look at concrete, practical ways of micro-organizing people. So there's no, nothing sort of abstract here, okay? You know, I'm not going to say that the particular micro-designs I'm going to suggest are the be-all, end-all, but you're going to have a really clear idea. You know, as a joke goes, you're going to know where to put the biscuits on the table uh, with your mobilization meeting. It's that sort of level of detail. Okay, so how does this translate then into obviously the broader project on a micro level of social disruption, social collapse, uh, revolutionary upsurgences and all the rest of it? So the proposition is going to be that this grounding, this creation of a dynamo, as I'm going to call it, of mobilization, action, and organization provides what you might call a, a, a army, a nonviolent army of agitation, of agitators. And, and then that can be applied to three different scenarios. The first scenario is, is 
what I would call the American civil rights movement model, a sequence, a linear sequence of um, civil resistance episodes, non-violence episodes, which results in a series of legislative changes. But as we've been saying from the beginning of these talks, in the present context, in this pre-revolutionary context, what's more likely to happen, or at least what we need to be open towards, is to expect there to be openings where we can proactively design whirlwind events where suddenly, you know, from one week to the next, suddenly thousands of people go into the street because of some major 9-11-esque ecological crisis or social crisis which is inevitably coming along. And thirdly, we need to prepare for the very high likelihood that something will come out of nowhere and the revolutionaries in classic historical style will have no input whatsoever because they're too busy sort of trying to work things out and being in their little sort of herd. Uh, but something comes out of nowhere and then, you know, you have to chase the tail of it and try and enculture it and structure it so that it produces a pro-social outcome. So this process of creating mobilisation actions, framing organisation, gives us openings into those three scenarios. Now, these three scenarios, you know, it might just be one, it might be several of them, but that's the opening, that's the door, the three doors, as it were, that open into this macro world, in, in other words, the top level design of what the hell is this revolution going to look like and what are we trying to do and how are we going to make it work. <clears throat> so the second series of podcasts will talk more in detail about two case studies. One is A22. So this is the network of civil resistance projects on on the climate crisis around Western democracies, uh, including some of the biggest climate crisis campaigns, such as um, Last Generation in Germany, ones in Italy, France, and various other places. And they, all these projects are broadly based upon the best practice of the last three or four years, which has been enacted through Insulate Britain and Just Stop Oil, uh, which of course on themselves have stood on the shoulders of giants. So it's like a continuing iterative dialogical process of working out what works best. So we're going to look at that because that's going to be quite interesting and also looking at how international cooperation and coordination works. Then we're going to look at the Humanity Project. It's a project that at the, mo at the time of me speaking to you is only sort of half formed, but this is the project of transitioning from what you might call a classical non-violence climate crisis sort of project into something that's a lot more um, holistic, that includes elements of standing in elections, uh, cultural activities, changing the culture, um, forms of assembly, citizens' assemblies, people's assemblies, and of course, civil resistance. And this is gives us a more concretized gateway into what the transformation of a political regime actually looks like. So that leads us on to this very messy, interactive uh, process of the, the actual revolution itself, in other words, this revolutionary episode. And the most important thing here is going to be to understand 
this is not a black and white situation. It's not clear when a revolution starts, and it's certainly not clear when a revolution ends. In other words, what happens is a melee of different forms of resistance, different forms of parallel institutions, different forms of coalition building, and to be perfectly honest, it's super messy. So I'm going to attempt to sort of just march into that space, give it some structure, at least so we can understand some of the principles and some of the priorities and, of course, some of the designs that enable us to transfer what could be total chaos into something that looks excitingly pro-social, uh, democratic and something we can be proud of. Um, and then, lastly, and only lastly, we will look at the programme. By the time we look at the programme and do podcasts on the programme, the revolutionary programme, you know, what should be happening, where, when and how, we'll have done it, it'll be like the icing on the cake, as it were, of this whole build-up of looking at the microprocessors and then this whole environment of power and confrontation through which the, pro the programme um, is produced. And the programme itself, of course, feeds into that process of consolidating people power. So it's all a big backwards and forwards situation, if the truth be known. Okay, so the last few podcasts will deal with the post-revolutionary situation in general terms. So most of what these podcasts are about is the process up to and including the, the revolutionary period. But I think it's important to take a little bit of an overview on some of the massive conundrums, political conundrums of the last two or three hundred years, and arguably the last two or three thousand years, because I'm sure, you know, you're sitting there making the very valid observation that the problems of humanity are very deep. <laughs> it's not just a matter of having a revolution and everything trundled along okay again. There's fundamental problems with the way in which we relate to the material world in order to provide for ourselves, namely economic activity and more specifically of course with this, you know, generic culture of capitalistic extraction and exploitation, which has its roots in broader uh, broader um, cultural and social phenomena that go back thousands of years. Please tell your friends and dare I say, you know, if you've got a bit of money spare, you can contribute to my Patreon account. Because although uh, I have all my meals made for me in this um, cell I'm in, uh, I do need to pay the mortgage and all the rest of it. So you can throw me a bit of cash, that would be great. Uh, but equally important is, if you think this is sort of interesting, and dare I say it is, tell those other three or four people that you know uh, about it, and they can listen to it too. That's it. I'll see you next time.